What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Part 1, Chapter 5 of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London, or Wild England, by Richard Jeffreys. Part 1. The Relapse into Barbarism. Chapter 5. The Lake. There now only remains the geography of our country to be treated of before the history is commenced. Now, the most striking difference between the country as we know it, and as it was known to the ancients, is the existence of the great lake in the centre of the island. From the red rocks by the Severn hither, the most direct route a galley can follow is considered to be about two hundred miles in length, and it is a journey which often takes a week even for a vessel well manned, because the course, as it turns round the islands, faces so many points of the compass, and therefore the oarsmen are sure to have to labour in the teeth of the wind, no matter which way it blows. Many parts are still unexplored, and scarce anything known of their extent, even by repute. Until Felix Aquila's time, the greater portion, indeed, had not even a name. Each community was well acquainted with the bay before its own city, and with the route to the next, but beyond that they were ignorant, and had no desire to learn. Yet the lake cannot really be so long and broad as it seems, for the country could not contain it. The length is increased, almost trebled, by the islands and shoals, which will not permit of navigation in a straight line. For the most part, too, they follow the southern shore of the mainland, which is protected by a fringe of islets and banks, from the storms which sweep over the open waters. Thus rowing along round the gulfs and promontories, their voyage is thrice prolonged, but rendered nearly safe from the waves, which rise with incredible celerity before the gales. The slow ships of commerce, indeed, are often days in traversing the distance between one port and another, for they wait for the wind to blow abaft, and, being heavy, deeply laden, 
built broad and flat-bottomed for shallows, and bluff at the bows, they drift like logs of timber. In canoes the hunters indeed sometimes pass swiftly from one place to another, venturing farther out to sea than the ships. They could pass yet more quickly were it not for the inquisition of the authorities at every city and port, who not only levy dues and fees for the treasury of the prince, and for their own rapacious desires, but demand whence the vessel comes, to whom she belongs, and whither she is bound, so that no ship can travel rapidly unless so armed as to shake off these inquisitors. The canoes, therefore, travel at night, and in calm weather, many miles away from the shore, and thus escape, or slip by daylight among the reedy shallows, sheltered by the flags and willows from view. The ships of commerce haul up to the shore towards evening, and the crews, disembarking, light their fires and cook their food. There are, however, one or two gaps, as it were, in their usual course, which they cannot pass in this leisurely manner, where the shore is exposed and rocky or too shallow, and where they must reluctantly put forth and sail from one horn of the land to the other. The lake is also divided into two unequal portions by the Straits of White Horse, where vessels are often weather-bound and cannot make way against the wind, which sets a current through the narrow channel. There is no tide, the sweet waters do not ebb and flow. But while I thus discourse, I have forgotten to state how they came to fill the middle of the country. Now, the philosopher Sylvester, and those who seek after marvels, say that the passage of the dark body through space caused an immense volume of fresh water to fall in the shape of rain, and also that the growth of the forests distilled rain from the clouds. Let us leave these speculations to dreamers, and recount what is known to be for there is no tradition among the common people, who are extremely tenacious of such things, of any great rainfall. Nor is there any mention of floods in the ancient manuscripts. Nor is there any larger fall of rain now than was formerly the case. But the lake itself tells us how it was formed, or as nearly as we shall ever know, and these facts were established by the expeditions lately sent out. At the eastern extremity the lake narrows, and finally is lost in the vast marshes which cover the site of the ancient London. Through these, no doubt, in the days of the old world, there flowed the river Thames. By changes of the sea-level, and the sand that was brought up, there must have grown great banks which obstructed the stream. I have formerly mentioned the vast quantities of timber, the wreckage of towns and bridges which was carried down by the various rivers, and by none more so than by the Thames. These added to the accumulation, which increased the faster, because the foundations of the ancient bridges held it like piles driven in for the purpose and before this the river had become partially choked from the cloacae of the ancient city, which poured into it through enormous subterranean aqueducts and drains, 
after a time, all these shallows and banks became well matted together by the growth of weeds, of willows and flags, while the tide, ebbing lower at each drawing back, left still more mud and sand. Now it is believed that when this had gone on for a time, the waters of the river, unable to find a channel, began to overflow up into the deserted streets, and especially to fill the underground passages and drains, of which the number and extent was beyond all the power of words to describe. These, by the force of the water, were burst up, and the houses fell in. For this marvellous city, of which such legends are related, was, after all, only of brick, and when the ivy grew over, and trees and shrubs sprang up, and, lastly, the waters underneath burst in, this huge metropolis was soon overthrown. At this day all those parts which were built upon low ground are marshes and swamps. Those houses that were upon high ground were, of course, like the other towns, ransacked of all they contained by the remnant that was left. The iron, too, was extracted. Trees growing up by them in time cracked the walls, and they fell in. Trees and bushes covered them, ivy and nettles concealed the crumbling masses of brick. The same was the case with the lesser cities and towns whose sites are known in the woods. For though many of our present towns bear the ancient names, they do not stand upon the ancient sites, but are two or three and sometimes ten miles distant. The founders carried with them the name of their original residence. Thus the low-lying parts of the mighty city of London became swamps, and the higher grounds were clad with bushes. The very largest of the buildings fell in, and there was nothing visible but trees and hawthorns on the upper lands, and willows, flags, reeds and rushes on the lower. These crumbling ruins still more choked the stream, and almost, if not quite, turned it back. If any water ooze past, it is not perceptible, and there is no channel through to the salt ocean. It is a vast, stagnant swamp, which no man dare enter, since death would be his inevitable fate. There exhales from this oozy mass so fatal a vapour that no animal can endure it. The black water bears a greenish-brown floating scum, which for ever bubbles up from the putrid mud of the bottom. When the wind collects the miasma, and as it were presses it together, it becomes visible as a low cloud which hangs over the place. The cloud does not advance beyond the limit of the marsh, seeming to stay there by some constant attraction and well it is for us that it does not, since at such times when the vapour is thickest, the very wildfowl leave the reeds and fly from the poison. There are no fishes, neither can eels exist in the mud, nor even newts. It is dead. The flags and reeds are coated with slime, and noisome to the touch. 
there is one place where even these do not grow, and where there is nothing but an oily liquid, green and rank. It is plain that there are no fishes in the water, for herons do not go thither, nor the kingfishers, not one of which approaches the spot. They say the sun is sometimes hidden by the vapour when it is thickest, but I do not see how any can tell this, since they could not enter the cloud, as to breathe it, when collected by the wind, is immediately fatal. For all the rottenness of a thousand years, and of many hundred millions of human beings, is there, festering under the stagnant water, which has sunk down into and penetrated the earth, and floated up to the surface the contents of the buried cloacae. Many scores of men have, I fear, perished in the attempt to enter this fearful place, carried on by their desire of gain. For it can scarcely be disputed that untold treasures lie hidden therein, but guarded by terrors greater than fiery serpents. These have usually made their endeavours to enter in severe and continued frost, or in the height of a drought. Frost diminishes the power of the vapour, and the marshes can then, too, be partially traversed, for there is no channel for a boat. But the moment anything be moved, whether it be a bush, or a willow, even a flag, if the ice be broken, the pestilence rises yet stronger. Besides which, there are portions which never freeze, and which may be approached unawares, or a turn of the wind may drift the gas towards the explorer. In the midst of summer, after long heat, the vapour rises, and is in a degree dissipated into the sky, and then by following devious ways an entrance may be effected, but always at the cost of illness. If the explorer be unable to quit the spot before night, whether in summer or winter, his death is certain. In the earlier times, some bold and adventurous men did indeed succeed in getting a few jewels, but since then the marsh has become more dangerous, and its pestilent character, indeed, increases year by year as the stagnant water penetrates deeper, so that now, for very many years, no such attempts have been made. The extent of these foul swamps is not known with certainty, but it is generally believed that they are at the widest twenty miles across, and that they reach in a winding line for nearly forty. But the outside parts are much less fatal. It is only the interior which is avoided. Towards the lake, the sand thrown up by the waves has long since formed a partial barrier between the sweet water and the stagnant, rising up to within a few feet of the surface. This barrier is overgrown with flags and reeds where it is shallow. Here it is possible to sail along the sweet water, within an arrow-shot of the swamp. Nor, indeed, would the stagnant mingle with the sweet, as is evident at other parts of the swamp, where streams flow side by side with the dark or reddish water, and there are pools upon one side of which the deer drink, while the other is not frequented even by rats. Chapter 14
the common people aver that demons reside in these swamps, and indeed at night fiery shapes are seen, which to the ignorant are sufficient confirmation of such tales. The vapour, where it is most dense, takes fire, like the blue flame of spirits, and these flaming clouds float to and fro, and yet do not burn the reeds. The superstitious trace in them the forms of demons and winged fiery serpents, and say that white spectres haunt the margin of the marsh after dusk. In a lesser degree the same thing has taken place with other ancient cities. It is true that there are not always swamps, but the sites are uninhabitable because of the emanations from the ruins, therefore they are avoided. Even the spot where a single house has been known to have existed is avoided by the hunters in the woods. They say, when they are stricken with ague or fever, that they must have unwittingly slept on the site of an ancient habitation. Nor can the ground be cultivated near the ancient towns, because it causes fever. And thus it is that, as I have already stated, the present places of the same name are often miles distant from the former locality. No sooner does the plough or the spade turn up an ancient site than those who work there are attacked with illness. And thus the cities of the old world, and their houses and habitations, are deserted and lost in the forest. If the hunters, about to pitch their camp for the night, should stumble on so much as a crumbling brick or a fragment of hewn stone, they at once remove at least a bowshot away. The eastward flow of the Thames being at first checked, and finally almost or quite stopped by the formation of these banks, the water turned backwards, as it were, and began to cover hitherto dry land. And this, with the other lesser rivers and brooks that no longer had any ultimate outlet, accounts for the lake, so far as this side of the country is concerned. At the western extremity, the waters also contract between the steep cliffs called the Red Rocks, near to which once existed the city of Bristol. Now the Welsh say, and the tradition of those who dwell in that part of the country bears them out, that in the time of the Old World the River Severn flowed past the same spot, but not between these cliffs. The great River Severn coming down from the north, with England on one bank and Wales upon the other, entered the sea, widening out as it did so. Just before it reached the sea, Another lesser river, called the Avon, the upper part of which is still there, joined it, passing through this cleft in the rocks. But when the days of the old world ended in the twilight of the ancients, as the salt ocean fell back and its level became lower, vast sandbanks were disclosed, which presently extended across the most part of the Severn River. Others, indeed, think that the salt ocean did not sink, but that the land instead was lifted higher. Then they say that the waves threw up an immense quantity of shingle and sand, and that thus these banks were formed. 
All that we know with certainty, however, is that across the estuary of the Severn there rose a broad barrier of beach, which grew wider with the years, and still increases westwards. It is as if the ocean churned up its floor and cast it forth upon the strand. Now, when the Severn was thus stayed yet more effectually than the Thames, in the first place it also flowed backwards, as it were, till its overflow mingled with the reflux of the Thames. Thus the inland sea of fresh water was formed. Though Sylvester hints, what is most improbable, that the level of the land sank and formed a basin. After a time, when the waters had risen high enough, since all water must have an outlet somewhere, the lake, passing over the green country behind the red rocks, came pouring through the channel of the Avon. Then, farther down, it rose over the banks which were lowest there, and thus found its way over a dam into the sea. Now, when the tide of the ocean is at its ebb, the waters of the lake rush over these banks with so furious a current that no vessel can either go down or come up. If they attempted to go down, they would be swamped by the meeting of the waves. If they attempted to come up, the strongest gale that blows could not force them against the stream. As the tide gradually returns, however, the level of the ocean rises to the level of the lake, the outward flow of water ceases, and there is even a partial inward flow of the tide, which at its highest reaches to the red rocks. At this state of the tide, which happens twice in a day and night, vessels can enter or go forth. The Irish ships, of which I have spoken, thus come into the lake, waiting outside the bar till the tide lifts them over. The Irish ships, being built to traverse the ocean from their country, are large and stout and well manned, carrying from thirty to fifty men. The Welsh ships, which come down from that inlet of the lake which follows the ancient course of the Severn, are much smaller and lighter, as not being required to withstand the heavy seas. They carry but fifteen or twenty men each, but then they are more numerous. The Irish ships, on account of their size and draught, in sailing about the sweet waters, cannot always haul on shore at night nor follow the course of the ships of burden between the fringe of islands and the strand. They have often to stay in the outer and deeper waters, but the Welsh boats come in easily at all parts of the coast, so that no place is safe against them. The Welsh have ever been most jealous of the Severn, and will on no account permit so much as a canoe to enter it, so that whether it be a narrow creek or whether there be wide reaches, or what the shores may be like, we are ignorant. And this is all that is with certainty known concerning the origin of the inland sea of sweet water, excluding all that superstition and speculation have advanced, and setting down nothing but ascertained facts. A beautiful sea it is, clear as crystal, exquisite to drink, abounding with fishes of every kind, and adorned with green islands. There is nothing more lovely in the world 
than when, upon a calm evening, the sun goes down across the level and gleaming water, where it is so wide that the eye can but just distinguish a low and dark cloud, as it were, resting upon the horizon, or perhaps, looking lengthways, cannot distinguish any ending to the expanse. Sometimes it is blue, reflecting the noonday sky, sometimes white from the clouds, again green and dark as the wind rises and the waves roll. Storms indeed come up with extraordinary swiftness, for which reason the ships, whenever possible, follow the trade route, as it is called, behind the islands, which shelter them like a protecting reef. They drop equally quickly, and thus it is not uncommon for the morning to be calm, the midday raging in waves dashing resistlessly upon the beach, and the evening still again. The Irish, who were accustomed to the salt ocean, say in the suddenness of its storms and the shifting winds it is more dangerous than the sea itself. But then there are almost always islands behind which a vessel can be sheltered. Beneath the surface of the lake there must be concealed very many ancient towns and cities of which the names are lost. Sometimes the anchors bring up even now fragments of rusty iron and old metal, or black beams of timber. It is said, and with probability, that when the remnant of the ancients found the water gradually encroaching, for it rose very slowly, as they were driven back year by year, they considered that in time they would be all swept away and drowned. But after extending to its present limits, the lake rose no farther, not even in the wettest seasons, but always remains the same. From the position of certain keys, we know that it has thus remained for the last hundred years at least. Never, as I observed before, was there so beautiful an expanse of water. How much must we sorrow that it has so often proved only the easiest mode of bringing the miseries of war to the doors of the unoffending. Yet men are never weary of sailing to and fro upon it, and most of the cities of the present time are upon its shore. And in the evening we walk by the beach, and from the rising grounds look over the waters, as if to gaze upon their loveliness were reward to us for the labour of the day. End of Part 1「After London or Wild England」by Richard Jefferies Part 2 Wild England Chapter 1 Sir Felix On a bright May morning the sunlight at five o'clock was pouring into a room which faces the east at the ancestral home of the Aquilas. In this room, Felix, the eldest of the three sons of the baron, was sleeping. The beams passed over his head, 
and lit up a square space on the opposite whitewashed wall, where, in the midst of the brilliant light, hung an ivory cross. There were only two panes of glass in the window, each no more than two or three inches square, the rest of the window being closed by strong oaken shutters, thick enough to withstand the stroke of an arrow. In the daytime one of these at least would have been thrown open to admit air and light. They did not quite meet, and a streak of sunshine, in addition to that which came through the tiny panes, entered at the chink. Only one window in the house contained more than two such panes. It was in the Baroness's sitting-room, and most of them had none at all. The glass left by the ancients in their dwellings had long since been used up or broken, and the fragments that remained were too precious to be put in ordinary rooms. When larger pieces were discovered, they were taken for the palaces of the princes, and even these were but sparingly supplied, so that the saying, he has glass in his window, was equivalent to, he belongs to the upper ranks. On the recess of the window was an inkstand, which had been recently in use, for a quill lay beside it, and a sheet of parchment partly covered with writing. The ink was thick and very dark, made of powdered charcoal, leaving a slightly raised writing which could be perceived by the finger on rubbing it lightly over. Beneath the window on the bare floor was an open chest, in which were several similar parchments and books, and from which the sheet on the recess had evidently been taken. This chest, though small, was extremely heavy and strong, being dug out with the chisel and gouge from a solid block of oak. Except a few parallel grooves, there was no attempt at ornamentation upon it. The lid, which had no hinges, but lifted completely off, was tilted against the wall. It was, too, of oak some inches thick, and fitted upon the chest by a kind of dovetailing at the edges. Instead of a lock, the chest was fastened by a lengthy song of ox-hide, which now lay in a coil on the floor. Bound round and round, twisted and intertangled, and finally tied with a special and secret knot, the ends being concealed, the thong of leather secured the contents of the chest from prying eyes or thievish hands. With axe or knife, of course, the knot might easily have been severed, but no one could obtain access to the room except the retainers of the house, and which of them, even if unfaithful, would dare to employ such means in view of the certain punishment that must follow. It would occupy hours to undo the knot, and then it could not be tied again in exactly the same fashion, so that the real use of the thong was to assure the owner that his treasures had not been interfered with in his absence. Such locks as were made were of the clumsiest construction. They were not so difficult to pick as the thong to untie, and their expense, or rather the difficulty of getting a workman who could manufacture them, confined their use to the heads of great houses. 
The Baron's chest was locked, and his alone, in the dwelling. Besides the parchments which were nearest the top, as most in use, there were three books, much worn and decayed, which had been preserved, more by accident than by care, from the libraries of the ancients. One was an abridged history of Rome, the other a similar account of English history, the third a primer of science or knowledge. All three, indeed, being books which among the ancients were used for teaching children, and which by the men of those days would have been cast aside with contempt. Exposed for years in decaying houses, rain and mildew had spotted and stained their pages. The covers had rotted away these hundred years, and were now supplied by a broad sheet of limp leather, with wide margins, far overlapping the edges. Many of the pages were quite gone, and others torn by careless handling. The abridgment of Roman history had been scorched by a forest fire, and the charred edges of the leaves had dropped away in semicircular holes. Yet by pondering over these, Felix had, as it were, reconstructed much of the knowledge which was the common, and therefore unvalued, possession of all when they were printed. The parchments contained his annotations, and the result of his thought. They were also full of extracts from decaying volumes, lying totally neglected in the houses of other nobles. Most of these were of extreme antiquity, for when the ancients departed, the modern books which they had composed, being left in the decaying houses at the mercy of the weather, rotted or were destroyed by the frequent grass-fires. But those that had been preserved by the ancients in museums escaped for a while, and some of these yet remained in lumber-rooms and corners, whence they were occasionally dragged forth by the servants, for greater convenience in lighting the fires. The young nobles, entirely devoted to the chase, to love intrigues and war, overwhelmed Felix Aquila with ridicule when they found him poring over these relics, and being of a proud and susceptible spirit, they so far succeeded that he abandoned the open pursuit of such studies, and stole his knowledge by fitful glances when there was no one near. As among the ancients learning was esteemed above all things, so now, by a species of contrast, it was of all things the most despised. Under the books, in one corner of the chest, was a leather bag containing four golden sovereigns, such as were used by the ancients, and eighteen pieces of modern silver money, the debased shillings of the day, not much more than half of which was silver, and the rest alloy. The gold coins had been found while digging holes for the posts of a new stockade, and by the law should have been delivered to the prince's treasury. All the gold discovered, whether in the form of coin or jewellery, was the property of the prince, who was supposed to pay for its value in currency. As the actual value of the currency was only half of its nominal value, and sometimes less, the transaction was greatly in favour of the treasury. Such was the scarcity of gold, 
that the law was strictly enforced, and had there been the least suspicion of the fact, the house would have been ransacked from the cellars to the roof. Imprisonment and fine would have been the inevitable fate of Felix, and the family would very probably have suffered for the fault of one of its members. But, independent and determined to the last degree, Felix ran any risk rather than surrender that which he had found, and which he deemed his own. This unbending independence and pride of spirit, together with scarce-concealed contempt for others, had resulted in almost isolating him from the youth of his own age, and had caused him to be regarded with dislike by the elders. He was rarely, if ever, asked to join the chase, and still more rarely invited to the festivities and amusements provided in adjacent houses, or to the grander entertainments of the higher nobles. Too quick to take offence where none was really intended, he fancied that many bore him ill-will who had scarcely given him a passing thought. He could not forgive the coarse jokes uttered upon his personal appearance by men of heavier build, who despised so slender a stripling. He would rather be alone than join their company, and would not compete with them in any of their sports, so that when his absence from the arena was noticed, it was attributed to weakness or cowardice. These imputations stung him deeply, driving him to brood within himself. He was never seen in the courtyards or anterooms at the palace, nor following in the train of the prince, as was the custom with the youthful nobles. The civility of the court angered and disgusted him. The eagerness of strong men to carry a cushion, or fetch a dog, annoyed him. There were those who observed this absence from the crowd in the anterooms. In the midst of so much intrigue and continual striving for power, designing men, on the one hand, were ever on the alert for what they imagined would prove willing instruments, and on the other, the prince's counsellors kept a watchful eye on the dispositions of every one of the least consequence. So that, although but twenty-five, Felix was already down in two lists, the one at the palace of persons whose views, if not treasonable, were doubtful, and the other, in the hands of a possible pretender, as a discontented and therefore useful man. Felix was entirely ignorant that he had attracted so much observation. He supposed himself simply despised and ignored. He cherished no treason, had not the slightest sympathy with any pretender, held totally aloof from intrigue, and his reveries, if they were ambitious, concerned only himself. But the most precious of the treasures in the chest were eight or ten small sheets of parchment, each daintily rolled and fastened with a ribbon, letters from Aurora Timer, who had also given him the ivory cross on the wall. It was of ancient workmanship, a relic of the old world. A compass, a few small tools, valuable because preserved for so many years, and not now to be obtained for any consideration, and a magnifying-glass, a relic also of the ancients, 
completed the contents of the chest. Upon a low table by the bedstead were a flint and steel and tinder, and an earthenware oil-lamp, not intended to be carried about. There, too, lay his knife, with a buckhorn hilt, worn by everyone in the belt, and his forester's axe, a small tool but extremely useful in the woods, without which, indeed, progress was often impossible. These were in the belt, which, as he undressed, he had cast upon the table, together with his purse, in which there were about a dozen copper coins, not very regular in shape, and stamped on one side only. The table was formed of two short hewn planks, scarcely smoothed, raised on similar planks on edge at each end, in fact a larger form. From a peg driven into the wall hung a disc of brass by a thin leathern lace. This disc, polished to the last degree, answered as a mirror. The only other piece of furniture, if so it could be called, was a block of wood at the side of the table, used as a chair. In the corner, between the table and the window, stood a long yew bow, and a quiver full of arrows ready for immediate use, besides which three or four sheaves lay on the floor. A crossbow hung on a wooden peg. The bow was of wood, and therefore not very powerful. Bolts and square-headed quarrels were scattered carelessly on the floor under it. Six or seven slender darts used for casting with the hand as javelins stood in another corner by the door, and two stouter boar-spears. By the wall a heap of nets lay, in apparent confusion, some used for partridges, some of coarse twine for bush-hens, another, lying a little apart, for fishes. Near these the component parts of two turkey-traps were strewn about, together with a small round shield or targe, such as are used by swordsmen, snares of wire, and, in an open box, several chisels, gouges, and other tools. A blow-tube was fastened to three pegs, so that it might not warp. A hunter's horn hung from another, and on the floor were a number of arrows in various stages of manufacture, some tied to the straightening-rod, some with the feathers already attached, and some hardly shaped from the elder or aspen-log. A heap of skins filled the third corner, and beside them were numerous stags-horns, and two of the white cow, but none yet of the much-dreaded and much-desired white bull. A few peacock's feathers were there also, rare and difficult to get, and intended for aurora. Round one footpost of the bed was a long coil of thin hide, a lasso, and on another was suspended an iron cap, or visorless helmet. There was no sword or lance. Indeed, of all these weapons and implements, none seemed in use, to judge by the dust that had gathered upon them and the rusted edges, except the bow and crossbow and one of the boar-spears. The bed itself was very low, framed of wood, thick and solid. The clothes were of the coarsest linen and wool. There were furs for warmth in winter, but these were not required in May. 
There was no carpet, nor any substitute for it. The walls were whitewashed. Ceiling there was none, the worm-eaten rafters were visible, and the roof-tree. But on the table was a large earthenware bowl full of meadow orchids, bluebells, and a bunch of may in flower. His hat, wide in the brim, lay on the floor. His doublet was on the wooden block or seat, with the long tight-fitting trousers which showed every muscle of the limb, and by them high shoes of tanned but unblacked leather. His short cloak hung on a wooden peg against the door, which was fastened with a broad bolt of oak. The parchment in the recess of the window, at which he had been working just before retiring, was covered with rough sketches, evidently sections of a design for a ship or galley propelled by oars. The square spot of light upon the wall slowly moved as the sun rose higher, till the ivory cross was left in shadow, but still the slumberer slept on, heedless too of the twittering of the swallows under the eaves, and the call of the cuckoo not far distant. End of Part 2 Chapter 1「Part Two, Chapter Two of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jefferies. Part Two, Wild England, Chapter Two, The House of Aquila. Presently there came the sound of a creaking axle which grew louder and louder as the wagon drew nearer, till it approached a shriek. The sleeper moved uneasily, but, recognising the noise even in his dreams, did not wake. The horrible sound stopped. There was the sound of voices, as if two persons, one without and one within the wall, were hailing each other. A gate swung open, and the wagon came past, under the very window of the bedroom. Even habit could not enable Felix to entirely withstand so piercing a noise when almost in his ears. He sat up a minute and glanced at the square of light on the wall to guess the time by its position. In another minute or two the squeaking of the axle ceased as the wagon reached the storehouses, and he immediately returned to the pillow. Without, and just beneath the window, there ran a road or way which in part divided the enclosure into two portions, the dwelling-house and its offices being on one side, the granaries and storehouses on the other. But a few yards to the left of his room a strong gate in the enclosing wall gave entrance to this roadway. It was called the Maple Gate, because a small maple tree grew near outside. The wall, which surrounded the whole place at a distance of eight or ten yards from the buildings, was of brick, and about nine feet high, with a ditch without. It was partly embattled, and partly loopholed, and a bonquette of earth rammed hard, ran all round inside, so that the defenders might discharge darts or arrows through the embrasures, and step down out of sight to prepare a fresh supply. At each corner there was a large platform, 
where a considerable number of men could stand and command the approaches. There were, however, no bastions or flanking towers. On the roof of the dwelling-house a similar platform had been prepared, protected by a parapet, from which height the entire enclosure could be overlooked. Another platform, though at a less height, was on the roof of the retainers' lodgings, so placed as especially to command the second gate. Entering by the Maple Gate, the dwelling-house was on the right hand, and the granaries and general storehouses on the left, the latter built on three sides of a square. Farther on, on the same side, were the stables, and near them the forge and workshops. Beyond these, again, were the lodgings of the retainers and labourers, near which, in the corner, was the south gate, from which the south road led to the cattle-pens and farms, and out to the south. Upon the right hand, after the dwelling-house, and connected with it, came the steward's stores, where the iron tools and similar valuable articles of metal were kept. Then, after a covered passageway, the kitchen and general hall, under one roof with the house. The house fronted in the opposite direction to the roadway. There was a narrow green lawn between it and the enceinte, or wall, and before the general hall and kitchens a gravelled court. This was parted from the lawn by palings, so that the house-folk enjoyed privacy, and yet were close to their servitors. The place was called the Old House, for it dated back to the time of the ancients, and the Aquilas were proud of the simple designation of their fortified residence. Felix's window was almost exactly opposite the entrance to the storehouse or granary yard, so that the wagon, after passing it, had to go but a little distance, and then, turning to the left, was drawn up before the doors of the warehouse. This wagon was low, built for the carriage of goods only, of hewn plank scarcely smooth, and the wheels were solid, cut, in fact, from the butt of an elm-tree. Unless continually greased, the squeaking of such wheels is terrible, and the carters frequently forgot their grease-horns. Much of the work of the farm, such as the carting of hay and corn in harvest-time, was done upon sleds, the wagons, there were but few of them, being reserved for longer journeys on the rough roads. This wagon, laden with wool, some of the season's clip, had come in four or five miles from an outlying cot or sheep-pen at the foot of the hills. In the buildings round the granary-yard there were stored not only the corn and flour required for the retainers, who might at any moment become a besieged garrison, but the most valuable products of the estate, the wool, hides, and tanned leather from the tan-pits, besides a great quantity of bacon and salt beef, indeed every possible article that could be needed. These buildings were put together with wooden pins, on account of the scarcity of iron, and were all, dwelling-houses included, roofed with red tile. Lesser houses, cottages, and sheds at a distance were thatched, but in an enclosure tiles were necessary, lest, in case of an attack, fire should be thrown. Half an hour later, at six o'clock, 
the watchman blew his horn as loudly as possible for some two or three minutes, the hollow sound echoing through the place. He took the time by the sundial on the wall, it being a summer morning. In winter he was guided by the position of the stars, and often, when sun or stars were obscured, went by guess. The house-horn was blown thrice a day, at six in the morning, as a signal that the day had begun, at noon, as a signal for dinner, at six in the afternoon, as a signal that the day, except in harvest-time, was over. The watchmen went their round about the enclosure all night long, relieved every three hours, armed with spears and attended by mastiffs. By day, one sufficed and his station was then usually, though not always, on the highest part of the roof. The horn reawoke Felix. It was the note by which he had been accustomed to rise for years. He threw open the oaken shutters, and the sunlight and the fresh breeze of the May morning came freely into the room. There was now the buzz of voices without, men unloading the wool, men at the workshops and in the granaries, and others waiting at the door of the steward's store for the tools which he handed out to them. Iron being so scarce, tools were a temptation, and were carefully locked up each night, and given out again in the morning. Felix went to the ivory cross, and kissed it in affectionate recollection of Aurora, and then looked towards the open window, in the pride and joy of youth, turning to the east, the morning, and the light. Before he had half-dressed there came a knock, and then an impatient kick at the door. He unbarred it, and his brother Oliver entered. Oliver had been for his swim in the river. He excelled in swimming, as indeed in every manly exercise, being as active and energetic as Felix was outwardly languid. His room was only across the landing, his door just opposite. It also was strewn with implements and weapons, but there was a far greater number of tools. He was an expert and artistic workman, and his table and his seat, unlike the rude blocks in Felix's room, were tastefully carved. His seat, too, had a back, and he had even a couch of his own construction. By his bedhead hung his sword, his most valued and most valuable possession. It was one which had escaped the dispersion of the ancients. It had been ancient even in their days, and of far better work than they themselves produced. Broad, long, straight, and well-balanced, it appeared capable of cutting through helmet and mail when wielded by Oliver's sturdy arm. Such a sword could not have been purchased for money. Money, indeed, had often been offered for it in vain. Persuasion, and even covert threats, from those higher in authority who coveted it, were alike wasted. The sword had been in the family for generations, and when the baron grew too old, or rather when he turned away from active life, the second son claimed it as the fittest to use it. The claim was tacitly allowed. At all events he had it, and meant to keep it. In a corner stood his lance, 
long and sharp, for use on horseback, and by it his saddle and accoutrements. The helmet and the shirt of mail, the iron greaves and spurs, the short iron mace to bang at the saddle-bow, spoke of the knight, the man of horses and war. Oliver's whole delight was in exercise and sport. The boldest rider, the best swimmer, the best at leaping, at hurling the dart or the heavy hammer, ever ready for tilt or tournament, his whole life was spent with horse, sword and lance. A year younger than Felix, he was at least ten years physically older. He measured several inches more round the chest. His massive shoulders and immense arms, brown and hairy, his powerful limbs, tower-like neck, and somewhat square jaw, were the natural concomitants of enormous physical strength. All the blood and bone and thew and sinew of the house seemed to have fallen to his share. All the fiery, restless spirit and defiant temper, all the utter recklessness and warrior's instinct. He stood every inch a man, with dark, curling, short-cut hair, brown cheek and Roman chin, trimmed moustache, brown eye, shaded by long eyelashes and well-marked brows, every inch a natural king of men. That very physical preponderance and animal beauty was perhaps his bane, for his comrades were so many, and his love-adventures so innumerable, that they left him no time for serious ambition. Between the brothers there was the strangest mixture of affection and repulsion. The elder smiled at the excitement and energy of the younger. The younger openly despised the studious habits and solitary life of the elder. In time of real trouble and difficulty they would have been drawn together. As it was, there was little communion. The one went his way, and the other his. There was perhaps rather an inclination to detract from each other's achievements than to praise them, a species of jealousy or envy without personal dislike, if that can be understood. They were good friends, and yet kept apart. Oliver made friends of all, and thwacked and banged his enemies into respectful silence. Felix made friends of none, and was equally despised by nominal friends and actual enemies. Oliver was open and jovial, Felix reserved and contemptuous or sarcastic in manner. His slender frame, too tall for his width, was against him. He could neither lift the weights nor undergo the muscular strain readily borne by Oliver. It was easy to see that Felix, although nominally the eldest, had not yet reached his full development. A light complexion, fair hair and eyes, were also against him. Where Oliver made conquests, Felix was unregarded. He laughed, but perhaps his secret pride was hurt. There was but one thing Felix could do in the way of exercise and sport. He could shoot with the bow in a manner till then entirely unapproached. 
his arrows fell unerringly in the centre of the target. The swift deer and the hare were struck down with ease, and even the wood-pigeon in full flight. Nothing was safe from those terrible arrows. For this, and this only, his fame had gone forth, and even this was made a source of bitterness to him. The nobles thought no arms worthy of men of descent but the sword and lance. Missile weapons as the dart and arrow were the arms of retainers. His degradation was completed when, at a tournament, where he had mingled with the crowd, the prince sent for him to shoot at the butt, and display his skill among the soldiery, instead of with the knights in the tilting-ring. Felix shot, indeed, but shut his eyes that the arrow might go wide, and was jeered at as a failure, even in that ignoble competition. Only by an iron self-control did he refrain that day from planting one of the despised shafts in the prince's eye. But when Oliver joked him about his failure, Felix asked him to hang up his breastplate at two hundred yards. He did so, and in an instant a shaft was sent through it. After that Oliver held his peace, and in his heart began to think that the bow was a dangerous weapon. "'So you are late again this morning,' said Oliver, leaning against the recess of the window and placing his arms on it. The sunshine fell on his curly dark hair, still wet from the river. "'Studying last night, I suppose?' turning over the parchment. "'Why didn't you ride into town with me?' "'The water must have been cold this morning,' said Felix, ignoring the question. "'Yes, there was a slight frost, or something like it, very early, and a mist on the surface, but it was splendid in the pool. Why don't you get up and come? You used to.' "'I can swim,' said Felix, laconically, implying that, having learnt the art, it no more tempted him. "'You were late last night. I heard you put night in.' "'We came home in style. It was rather dusky, but night galloped the green miles. Mind she doesn't put her hoof in a rabbit's hole some night.' "'Not that. She can see like a cat. I believe we got over the twelve miles in less than an hour.' "'Sharp work, considering the hills. "'You don't inquire for the news.' "'What's the news to me?' "'Well, there was a quarrel at the palace yesterday afternoon. "'The prince told Louis he was a double-faced traitor, "'and Louis told the prince he was a suspicious fool. "'It nearly came to blows, and Louis is banished. "'For the fiftieth time. "'This time it is more serious.' "'Don't believe it. He will be sent for again this morning. Cannot you see why?' "'No. If the prince is really suspicious, he will never send his brother into the country, where he might be resorted to by discontented people. He will keep him close at hand.' "'I wish the quarrelling would cease. It spoils half the fun. One's obliged to creep about the court and speak in whispers.' "'and you can't tell whom you are talking to. "'They may turn on you if you say too much. "'There is no dancing, either. "'I hate this moody state. 
I wish they would either dance or fight. Fight? Who? Anybody. There's some more news, but you don't care. No, I do not. Why don't you go and live in the woods all by yourself? said Oliver, in some heat. Felix laughed. Tell me your news. I am listening. The Irish landed at Blacklands the day before yesterday and burnt Robert's place. They tried Letburn, but the people there had been warned and were ready. And there's an envoy from Sipolis arrived. Some think the assembly has broken up. They were all at daggers drawn. So much for the Holy League. So much for the Holy League, repeated Felix. What are you going to do today? asked Oliver after a while. I'm going down to my canoe, said Felix. I will go with you. The trout are rising. Have you got any hooks? There's some in the box there, I think. Take the tools out. Oliver searched among the tools in the open box, all rusty and covered with dust, while Felix finished dressing, put away his parchment, and knotted the thong round his chest. He found some hooks at the bottom, and after breakfast they walked out together, Oliver carrying his rod and a boar-spear, and Felix a boar-spear also, in addition to a small flag-basket with some chisels and gouges. End of Part 2 Chapter 2「After London or Wild England」by Richard Jefferies. Part 2. Wild England. Chapter 3. The Stockade. When Oliver and Felix started, they left Philip, the third and youngest of the three brothers, still at breakfast. They turned to the left on getting out of doors, and again to the left, through the covered passage between the steward's store and the kitchen. Then, crossing the wagon-yard, they paused a moment to glance in at the forge, where two men were repairing part of a plough. Oliver must also look for a moment at his mare, after which they directed their steps to the south gate. The massive oaken door was open the bolts having been drawn back at Hornblow. There was a guard-room on one side of the gate, under the platform in the corner, where there was always supposed to be a watch. But in times of peace, and when there were no apprehensions of attack, the men whose turn it was to watch there were often called away for a time to assist in some labour going forward, and at that moment were helping to move the wool-packs farther into the warehouse. Still they were close at hand, and had the day-watchman or warder, who was now on the roof, blown his horn, would have rushed direct to the gate. Felix did not like this relaxation of discipline. His precise ideas were upset at the absence of the guard. Method, organisation, and precision were the characteristics of his mind, and this kind of uncertainty irritated him. "'I wish Sir Constance would insist on the guard being kept,' he remarked. Children, in speaking of their parents, invariably gave them their titles. Now their father's title was properly my lord, as he was a baron, 
and one of the most ancient. But he had so long abnegated the exercise of his rights and privileges, sinking the noble in the mechanician, that men had forgotten the proper style in which they should address him. Sir was applied to all nobles, whether they possessed estates or not. The brothers were invariably addressed as Sir Felix or Sir Oliver. It marked, therefore, the low estimation in which the baron was held when even his own sons spoke of him by that title. Oliver, though a military man by profession, laughed at Felix's strict view of the guard's duties. Familiarity with danger and natural carelessness had rendered him contemptuous of it. "'There's no risk,' said he, "'that I can see. Who could attack us? The Bushmen would never dream of it. The Romany would be seen coming days beforehand. We are too far from the lake for the pirates, and as we are not great people as we might have been, we need dread no private enmity.' besides which any assailants must pass the stockades first. Quite true. Still, I don't like it. It is a loose way of doing things. Outside the gate they followed the wagon-track, or south road, for about half a mile. It crossed meadows parted by low hedges, and they remarked, as they went, on the shortness of the grass, which, for want of rain, was not nearly fit for mowing. Last year there had been a bad wheat crop. This year there was at present scarcely any grass. These matters were of the highest importance. Peace or war, famine or plenty, might depend upon the weather of the next few months. The meadows, besides being divided by the hedges, kept purposely cropped low, were surrounded, like all the cultivated lands, by high and strong stockades. Half a mile down the south road they left the track, and following a footpath some few hundred yards, came to the pool where Oliver had bathed that morning. The river, which ran through the enclosed grounds, was very shallow, for they were near its source in the hills. But just there it widened, and filled a depression fifty or sixty yards across, which was deep enough for swimming. Beyond the pool the stream curved and left the enclosure. The stockade, or at least an open work of poles, was continued across it. This work permitted the stream to flow freely, but was sufficiently close to exclude anyone who might attempt to enter by creeping up the bed of the river. They crossed the river just above the pool by some stepping-stones, large blocks rolled in for the purpose and approached the stockade. It was formed of small but entire trees, young elms, firs, or very thick ash-poles, driven in a double row into the earth, the first or inner row side by side, the outer row filling the interstices, and the whole bound together at the bottom by split willow, woven in and out. This interweaving extended only about three feet up, and was intended first to bind the structure together, and secondly to exclude small animals which might creep in between the stakes. The reason it was not carried all up was that it should not afford a footing to human thieves desirous of climbing over. 
the smooth poles by themselves afforded no notch or foothold for a bushman's naked foot. They rose nine or ten feet above the willow, so that the total height of the palisade was about twelve feet, and the tops of the stakes were sharpened. The construction of such palisades required great labour, and could be carried out only by those who could command the services of numbers of men, so that a small proprietor was impossible unless within the walls of a town. This particular stockade was by no means an extensive one, in comparison with the estates of more prominent nobles. The enclosure immediately surrounding the old house was of an irregular oval shape, perhaps a mile long, and not quite three-quarters of a mile wide, the house being situated towards the northern and higher end of the oval. The river crossed it, entering on the west and leaving on the eastern side. The enclosure was, for the greater part, meadow and pasture, for here the cattle were kept, which supplied the house with milk, cheese and butter, while others intended for slaughter were driven in here for the last months of fattening. The horses in actual use for riding, or for the wagons, were also turned out here temporarily. There were two pens and rickyards within it, one beside the river, one farther down. The south road ran almost down the centre, passing both rickyards and leaving the stockade at the southern end by a gate called the barrier. At the northern extremity of the oval the palisade passed within three hundred yards of the house, and there was another barrier to which the road led from the maple gate, which has been mentioned. From thence it went across the hills to the town of Ponzi. Thus any one approaching the old house had first to pass the barrier and get inside the palisade. At each barrier there was a cottage and a guard-room, though, as a matter of fact, the watch was kept in peaceful times even more carelessly than at the inner gates of the wall about the house itself. Much the same plan, with local variations, was pursued on the other estates of the province, though the stockade at the old house was remarkable for the care and skill with which it had been constructed. Part of the duty of the watchman on the roof was to keep an eye on the barriers, which he could see from his elevated position. In case of an incursion of gypsies or any danger, the guard at the barrier was supposed to at once close the gate, blow a horn, and exhibit a flag. Upon hearing the horn, or observing the flag, the warder on the roof raised the alarm, and assistance was sent. Such was the system, but as no attack had taken place for some years, the discipline had grown lax. After crossing on the stepping-stones, Oliver and Felix were soon under the stockade which ran high above them, and was apparently as difficult to get out of as to get into. By the strict law of the estate, any person who left the stockade, except by the public barrier, rendered himself liable to the lash or imprisonment. Any person, even a retainer, endeavouring to enter from without, by pole, ladder, or rope, might be killed with an arrow or dart, putting himself into the position of an outlaw. In practice, of course, this law was frequently evaded. 
it did not apply to the family of the owner. Under some bushes by the palisade was a ladder of rope, the rungs, however, of wood. Putting his fishing-tackle and boar-spear down, Oliver took the ladder and threw the end over the stockade. He then picked up a pole with a fork at the end from the bushes, left there, of course, for the purpose, and with the fork pushed the rungs over, till the ladder was adjusted half within and half without the palisade. It hung by the wooden rungs which caught the tops of the stakes. He then went up, and when at the top, leant over and drew up the outer part of the ladder one rung, which he put the inner side of the palisade, so that on transferring his weight to the outer side it might uphold him. Otherwise the ladder, when he got over the points of the stakes, must have slipped the distance between one rung and a second. Having adjusted this, he got over, and Felix, carrying up the spears and tackle, handed them to him. Felix followed, and thus in three minutes they were on the outer side of the stockade. Originally the ground for twenty yards, all round outside the stockade, had been cleared of trees and bushes, that they might not harbour vermin or thorn-hogs, or facilitate the approach of human enemies. Part of the weekly work of the bailiffs was to walk round the entire circumference of the stockade to see that it was in order, and to have any bushes removed that began to grow up. As with other matters, however, in the lapse of time the bailiffs became remiss, and under the easy and perhaps too merciful rule of Sir Constance were not recalled to their duties with sufficient sharpness. Brambles and thorns and other underwood had begun to cover the space that should have been open, and young sapling oaks had risen from dropped acorns. Felix pointed this out to Oliver, who seldom accompanied him. He was indeed rather glad of the opportunity to do so, as Oliver had more interest with Sir Constance than himself. Oliver admitted it showed great negligence, but added that after all it really did not matter. "'What I wish,' said he, "'is that Sir Constance would go to court and take his proper position.' Upon this they were well agreed. It was, in fact, almost the only point upon which all three brothers did agree. They sometimes talked about it till they separated in a furious temper, not with each other, but with him. There was a distinct track of footsteps through the narrow band of low brambles and underwood between the stockade and the forest. This had been made by Felix in his daily visits to his canoe. The forest there consisted principally of hawthorn trees and thorn thickets, with some scattered oaks and ashes. The timber was sparse, but the fern was now fast rising up so thick that in the height of summer it would be difficult to walk through it. The tips of the fronds unrolling were now not up to the knee. Then the break would reach to the shoulder. The path wound round the thickets, the blackthorn being quite impenetrable, except with the axe, and came again to the river some four or five hundred yards from the stockade. The stream which ran from west to east through the enclosure here turned and went due south. On the bank, 
Felix had found a fine black poplar, the largest and straightest and best grown of that sort for some distance round, and this he had selected for his canoe. Stones broke the current here into eddies, below which there were deep holes and gullies where alders hung over, and an ever-rustling aspen spread the shadow of its boughs across the water. The light-coloured mud, formed of disintegrated chalk on the farther and shallower side, was only partly hidden by flags and sedges, which like a richer and more alluvial earth. Nor did the bushes grow very densely on this soil over the chalk, so that there was more room for casting the fly than is usually the case where a stream runs through a forest. Oliver, after getting his tackle in order, at once began to cast, while Felix, hanging his doublet on an oft-used branch, and leaning his spear against a tree, took his chisels and gouge from the flag-basket. He had chosen the black poplar for the canoe, because it was the lightest wood, and would float best. To fell so large a tree had been a great labour, for the axes were of poor quality, cut badly, and often required sharpening. He could easily have ordered half a dozen men to throw the tree, and they would have obeyed immediately. But then the individuality and interest of the work would have been lost. Unless he did it himself, its importance and value to him would have been diminished. It had now been down some weeks, had been hewn into outward shape, and the larger part of the interior slowly dug away with chisel and gouge. He had commenced while the hawthorn was just putting forth its first spray, when the thickets and the trees were yet bare. Now the May bloom scented the air, the forest was green, and his work approached completion. There remained, indeed, but some final shaping and rounding off, and the construction, or rather cutting out, of a secret locker in the stern. This locker was nothing more than a square aperture, chiselled out like a mortise, entering not from above, but parallel with the bottom, and was to be closed with a tight-fitting piece of wood, driven in by force of mallet. A little paint would then conceal the slight chinks, and the boat might be examined in every possible way without any trace of this hiding-place being observed. The canoe was some eleven feet long, and nearly three feet in the beam. It tapered at either end, so that it might be propelled backwards or forwards without turning, and stem and stern, interchangeable definitions in this case, each rose a few inches higher than the general gunwale. The sides were about two inches thick, the bottom three, so that although dug out from light wood, the canoe was rather heavy. At first Felix constructed a light shed of fir poles roofed with spruce fir branches over the log, so that he might work sheltered from the bitter winds of the early spring. As the warmth increased he had taken the shed down, and now, as the sun rose higher, was glad of the shade of an adjacent beach. End of Part 2 Chapter 3「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.